Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald. On April 15th, 2019, just a few weeks ago, the great French Cathedral of Notre-Dame de Paris caught fire. By the time the fire was put out, it had destroyed the central spire and most of the roof, along with much of the upper wall structure. The cathedral has been an iconic symbol of the nation of France for many years probably second only to the Eiffel Tower in terms of immediately recognizable French buildings. And so naturally, there was a lot of public grieving. Statements of support and sympathy flooded in, with dozens of world leaders expressing their condolences to the French people. Money also flooded in to the tune of over $1 billion pledged for rebuilding efforts. Certainly, it is understandable that something that has held the public's imagination for so long and has been the site of so much veneration, would cause such a public clamor. Today on the podcast, we're going to look at some of the more mythic implications of the Notre Dame fire, the place that buildings hold in human consciousness and myth, as well as the little-known history of the cathedral, which involves a popular goddess of the ancient world. All this coming up on The Emerald. So naturally, as the Notre Dame fire cooled, the raw sympathy and grief turned into internet opinion and commentary. Quickly evident in the commentary is the fact that people apparently have very different feelings on the relative importance of buildings. One friend of mine posted a famous poem from Percy Bysshe Shelley entitled Ozymandias. Here it is. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So the basic understanding here being that all things pass, these great monuments of man too will crumble into dust. Certainly it is not wise to put too much stock in buildings or in other fleeting things, 
For in the end, if we are to believe Shelley, all the Trump Towers and all the great temples and all the high skyscrapers will be one thing and one thing only, dust. And then another friend posted this. Notre Dame, like all great works of spiritual architecture, is reflective of a cosmic order and institutional power that the builders and designers of the time believed in. That cathedral was designed to tell a visual, spiritual, and cosmological story, and a story of temporal power to common folk. The relative proportions of the structures were no accident. The architecture is reflective of that order, and even people today feel that and identify with it, whether they are conscious of it or not, in my opinion. And I think many feel that order is falling apart. Things no longer make sense, and there is intense grief and fear in that, and for good reason. And so the visual image of that order and beauty being destroyed shakes one up on a deep level, a kind of cosmic grief that transcends the political complaint of it being just a building. So yeah, from one perspective, a building is just a building, and from another, a building reflects an order, a proportion, a structure to a society, and therefore to a community, and therefore to an individual, and therefore to a human mind. I remember distinctly living in New York at the time of the attack on the Twin Towers in 2001. I passed by them every day from my apartment on the way to work. From the grocery store parking lot where I did my shopping, from my Brooklyn fire escape, they were always visible, present even if not consciously registered in the visual field. So to have these two pillars that dominated the horizon for so many years suddenly gone was not just an adjustment in terms of getting used to a new cityscape. It was as if something was missing in my mind. My consciousness had changed. When I was in northern India in 2010 during a massive mudslide and did volunteer work with people whose houses had been swept away, the shock in their eyes was not just at losing their possessions. It was as if something that the mind had held onto as stable and permanent as an integral piece in the architecture of their own consciousness, was gone, and therefore the mind itself, and by extension the world itself, was not in its proper shape. This gets at something deeper, the link between architecture and mind. It's well known that the great spiritual edifices of the world, the Rainbow Mosque in Iran, the dazzling temples of India, all reflect the geometrical order of the universe. Their proportions are equivalent to proportions found all throughout nature, from the proportions of flowers to the proportions of the intervals between harmonious musical notes to the proportions of the human body. This external architecture, when done properly, tells a story of human beings' synchronous relationship with all of nature. This is perhaps architecture at its finest. The vaults of the temple are the vaults of our own skulls. The flame at the heart of the temple is the flame of our very own heart. Temples, or the ones that get it right, are likewise not simply chosen to be on random spots. Many are built on the bones of former temples of traditions that existed before. And those are built on the bones of even older shrines, 
and those shrines were built in those spots specifically because of their alignment to the natural world. Temples are built at the confluences of rivers, at the site of a distinct or sacred tree, on or near springs. Notre Dame is no different. There is a whole lot of evidence that Notre Dame was constructed over an existing temple to the goddess Isis, the Egyptian universal mother whose cult flourished from England to Sudan to Syria to Russia, and who was the most widely worshipped deity of the ancient world for 2,000 years. At the time of Christianity's arrival into Europe, there were already hundreds of shrines to Isis, many of them with a central image featuring a dark woman nursing a newborn child. The Isis cosmology features a virgin birth in which a dark mother gives birth to a child of light. It features themes of salvation and resurrection. As Isis worship was supplanted in Europe by the new religion of Christianity, elements of her iconography and cosmology remained, and the local Isis worshippers grafted the cosmology of their beloved mother onto Mother Mary, just as happened in Central and South America with the fusion of the African Orishas and the Catholic Saints, or in the Southwest U.S. with the Virgin Mary and the local Corn Mother. This also happened with local Celtic deities who became incorporated into the mythologies surrounding the Saints and the Virgin Mary. Many of the Black Madonna shrines of Europe were former Isis shrines. Notre Dame was no different. In fact, according to multiple French scholars, the central image of Isis remained installed in Notre Dame's Abbey of Saint-Germain for a full 300 years after the cathedral's completion. Parisians, perhaps unwittingly, worshipped Isis as Mary, until a cardinal in the 1500s had the idol destroyed. But many Madonna shrines in Europe and the Near East still contain ancient Isis images, and along the way her iconography was deeply appropriated into Christian iconography. There's going to be much more on Isis, the Black Madonna, and global visions of the Dark Mother on future episodes of this podcast. And if you're interested in the history of Notre Dame, you can check out Ian Begg's book, The Cult of the Black Virgin. And it's worth noting that some scholars dispute the fact that Notre Dame Cathedral was built on a former Isis shrine, though there is, like I say, very strong evidence to support the claim. And as always, you can check out the evidence and decide for yourself. And a guiding question when looking at this history of Notre Dame and Isis and the Black Madonna is, why are all the earliest images of the Virgin Mary black. So in many cultures along the way, the dominant theme in sacred architecture eventually shifted from sanctity and harmony with nature to size. The ultimate case in point being the Vatican. All the grandiosity and excess of the Vatican is supposedly meant to honor a man who had one white robe and no possessions and repeatedly extolled the virtues of poverty and the blessedness of poor people. It has been asked, in the days since the Notre Dame fire, if Jesus would have wanted a billion dollars to go to rebuild a building rather than going to feed the hungry or clothe the poor or heal the sick. It's my opinion that he would not have wanted that at all. But Christian architecture, just like Christian thought and Christian action, has in many instances drifted far from the original intent of Jesus. 
And here you have the phenomena of architecture that is designed to tell a very different story than that of human harmony with nature. A story of power, pomp, fear, awe. To put it another way, architecture can be used as a way to keep the people down by drawing a very clear line between the might and splendor and gold and majesty and weaponry of those who have and the meekness of those who do not. The Church of São Francisco in Salvador, Brazil, ostensibly in honor of a man whose primary teaching was that of poverty and communion with nature, is a massive golden edifice with wood robbed from the Amazon and gold pillaged from the lands of native people that sits a stone's throw away from one of the biggest slave markets of history, whose spoils no doubt the church directly benefited from. The story of power through building is not limited, of course, to religious structures. Our modern massive edifices, the Burj Khalifa, the Petronas Towers, skyscrapers that soar a quarter mile high, these are great monuments to the pursuit of capital at all costs, and they are thrust upward ever higher with nationalistic fervor. Yes, the old, I can build my building higher than you. Such a refined expression of the human mind. Sadly, India, a country that already boasts what can easily be called the most marvelous buildings in the world, in the form of the sun temples at Konark and Modera, the Ranikiwav Step Well, the Ajanta and Ellora Caves, the great temples of Sri Rangam and Tirupati, the great stupa at Sanchi, and of course the Taj Mahal, has joined the fray, spending crores and crores of rupees constructing gaudy 600-foot statues that stick out like well, like gaudy 600-foot statues. Of course, if you believe the Tibetan tantric traditions, all this external architecting is but a poor reflection of an architecture that exists latent within the human consciousness. The grandness that architects have sought to mirror in stone and gold exists in its truest form not on earth but in the human mind as a reflection of the sacred geometry of nature itself. The Tibetan practice of the sand mandala is an architecting, in glorious detail, of an elaborate palace of consciousness. At the end of the ritual, all the sand is swept away, just as the monuments of Ozymandias. But because the edifice was never a point of pride or attachment to begin with, one can both revel in the beauty of the architecture and allow it to return to dust, which might be a healthy attitude to take towards most constructs both mental and material. And it is never asked should the mandala have ever been built at all. So it's not simply a metaphor for impermanence or futility. It is a construct, just as much as it is eventually a dissolution, and the construction serves the very real purpose of acting as a focal point for the mind to dwell just as a temple is a very real and important place for pilgrims to sit and find peace. These elaborate architectures are also meditatively constructed in the mind of the practitioner. In tantric visualization practices, which I think should be termed architecting practices, rather than the more abstract term visualization, which implies a certain lack of tangibility, Elaborate palaces are constructed in minute detail in the mind, from the pillars to the ceilings, to the altars, to the offerings that sit upon them. 
A similar architecting pervades this classic Tamil story, as quoted through David Shulman's wonderful book, More Than Real. I am about to tell you the story of Puchalar of Ninravur and his imaginative act. That same Puchalar who wanted to raise up a shrine for Shiva, and, lacking all means, did indeed build a beautiful shrine in his mind, knowing that working with his own inner feeling would be best. So Puchalar was very poor, and after years of futile attempts to raise funds for a temple that he wanted to build, he realized he wasn't going to be able to construct the temple out of brick and mortar. Shulman goes on. He realized he would have to construct the shrine in his mind. He began to collect, with his awareness, all the resources he would need from the tiniest bits on up. Mentally, he sought out masons and carpenters together with their tools and materials. On an auspicious day, he lovingly and attentively laid the foundations according to the agamic rules. In his passion, he worked steadily, not even closing his eyes at night. From the upana molding above the plinth, through the many layers and levels of the structure, to the crowning Sikara tower, he gave it shape and precisely measured form in his mind. He worked thus for many days until the whole edifice was complete as imagined. He had everything plastered white, he dug a well and a tank, built the subsidiary shrines in the outer wall, and having seen to all the necessary details, set a day for the ritual consecration of the temple to Shiva. At the auspicious moment, Puchal installed Shiva in the temple he had built in his mind. For many days he worshipped him there, until at last he merged into the shadow cast by the golden anklets that dance in the golden hall. This is a way of saying that he attained samadhi or enlightenment. We too praise the feet of gold of that Puchalar who made a temple entirely out of thought. This wonderful story brings to mind, of course, Michelangelo's famous words that he saw the angel in the marble and sculpted until he set him free. The understanding is that the consciousness itself can be architected, that the mind is more than random signals and chaotic firings of neurons and relentless currents of agitated thought. The mind itself is building material. In the meditative traditions, this material is shaped into something that has structure to it. This is also why scientists conclude that daily ritual is important to the healthy functioning of the mind, its construction work. Ultimately, the Yoga Sutras say, the ordered consciousness begins to take on the quality of a jewel, luminous, strong, transparent, but unassailable, not prone to relentless drifting, but stable and clear, the jewel mind. It sounds far off, I know, but it's a worthy ideal to hold, perhaps ultimately more durable and radiant than the fallible structures of human hands.
some buildings cross the divide between the inner and outer worlds. Of the famous structures of mythic antiquity, one that got a lot of attention was the Tower of Babel. You know the story. There was a time when human beings all spoke one language, all could understand one another. United, they decide to construct a tower so high that it can reach all the way to God. This, of course, was overstepping their bounds. So as the tower rises higher and higher, God confounds their efforts by making them lose this united language, and soon they lose the ability to complete the project, and they are scattered across the earth. The myth of a tower that is constructed in an attempt to reach or compete with God can be found all around the world. Permutations of it can be found in ancient Sumer and Mexico and sub-Saharan Africa. Explorer David Livingston, yes, the same one referenced in the famous quote, Dr. Livingston, I presume, recorded that the people living around Lake Ngami in Botswana have a similar story with the added detail that as the structure eventually crumbled, the falling scaffolding cracked open the heads of the tower's architects. Sir James George Fraser recorded the Lozi people's story of wicked men who tried to build a column of masts to chase the creator, and the peoples in Congo and Tanzania speak of a man who built a tower of tree trunks in a failed attempt to reach the moon. Amazingly, as far away as New Guinea, there is a story of humankind's languages being confused after a failed attempt to build houses to heaven. This would be a particularly telling myth in New Guinea, which is home to 832 living languages, nearly one-seventh of the total languages in the world. So the rudimentary implications of this story are fairly obvious. Don't try to put yourself in the place of God. Don't try to reach too high. And of course, earthly heights and heavenly heights are perhaps not the same thing. The true heights are the heights we reach inside. A warning to all cultures who have valued the height of buildings above all else. Maybe they're listening. But the myth has many levels, as great myths always do. And the great myths, as mythologist Joseph Sanzanese says in his wonderful book, The Body of Myth, almost always involve a somatic element, a description of a somatic process or technique that is designed to teach initiates how to enter the trance state. From the yogic perspective, of course, the tower to God is the spinal column. The yoking of all the tribes of humanity in the effort to raise the tower up is the harnessing and uniting of the internal pranas in the effort to send the energy up the central column and reach the high spaces of consciousness. Just as in the Indian and Tibetan visions, the yogi, seated in meditation, is him or herself the central mountain of the universe, Meru. And the confounding of languages? Well, as Sansanese says, what is the biggest obstacle to meditation? discursive thought, all the confused yammerings, trains of words that circle the mind, not saying anything at all but distracting us from the present moment. When the mental chatter reaches a point where the mind is a maelstrom of unintelligible words, then the construction on the tower cannot continue. Here's what Sansanese has to say about it. You know, I can't but be convinced that the whole Tower of Babel story is referring to this 
that what drove people apart was this language. And when they say drove people apart, what they're really saying is what drove people away from being able to reach God. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel, right? They were building a tower and then suddenly they learned languages and then the whole thing, the whole project, the tower was to reach to God. And okay, so think of a person sitting in meditation and he's struggling with trying to not be distracted by the noise in his head, right? I think that that's exactly what that story is about, ultimately. If you um, were to look at it from a yogic perspective, you know, the premise is trying to build a tower to reach God when actually the tower to reach the divine is the spinal column, right? Yeah, right. Buddhism is very open about this. You know, what's Mount Maru? Mount Maru is the Mm. person seated in meditation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, and that's what I was getting at when I said building this tower, this person seated in meditation. He is the tower, a creature that's upright, that can breathe steadily and can engage in breath control and remember God's name in doing so, which leads to illumination. This meditative vision suddenly makes the Botswanan version of the Babel story, in which the skulls are broken open at the end, suddenly a whole lot more interesting. The theme of something rising up and being broken open, and specifically something within the head being broken open, is found in all the yoga texts and is truly a global myth. It's found in current mythologies and in ancient ones all across the world. It's what Joseph Sansonese calls the great myth, because of course it is directly describing what the ancient yogis spoke of as the process of attaining samadhi. The energies are harnessed in meditation and directed upwards until something breaks open and there is a shower of goodness that results. The soma nectar, it is called, the state of bliss, as eager and transfixed and joyous and wondrous as the child's eyes as they scoop up the sweets from a cracked open piñata above, or relish in the dripping butter from the breaking of the suspended butter pot in the Indian festival of Janmastami all ritual to remind us that the architecture we need to reach the sky is, of course, right in here. So back to that billion dollars. You remember the billion dollars that was raised to repair Notre Dame? An article came out in The Guardian that mere weeks before the fire, the cathedral had made a concerted effort to raise funds to make necessary repairs that probably could have averted the fire. These preventative measures would have cost a fraction of what the repairs after the fact would cost. Of course, there's nothing that interesting about a cathedral asking for some fix-up cash for its dusty, cobwebbed interior. Somehow, the crisis and conflagration of a fire that reduces parts of that cathedral to dust is more attractive. Why is it that it is not until something is broken that we realize it needs to be preserved? Consider the cost it would take now to prevent some of the more cataclysmic effects of climate change, and consider the exponentially greater, not even comparable costs of waiting to try to repair the biosphere after the fact, if it can even be done at all. Yet to start to see this way requires a mindset and worldview of true conservation, in which keeping, cultivating, or preserving are more important to the human psyche than crisis or conflagration. 
It's true that human beings crave crisis and climax, which is why human ritual has been geared towards the breaking open of the individual into the trance state for time immemorial. It's why those rituals that induce mass catharsis, like rock concerts or action movies, are some of our most popular rituals. And societies that have lost the ritual that brings us to that cognitive climax of the trance state seek that climax in other external rituals, addictive spending, war, planetary destruction. Even in something as basic as yoga practice, we can see our proclivity towards crisis. Traditional yoga practices that were much more internal and slow, the ones that favored small movements, less postures, meditative states, and the conservation of prana rather than the expression of it, are far less popular than big, bold, and expressive forms that are more about spending energy than recirculating it. Which is a fancy way of saying that as modern humans, we like to spend far more than we like to save. One of the visions of the rebuilt Notre Dame, presented by Belgian architect Vincent Caillebeau, envisions the cathedral's upper level and spire as a wonder of fractal glass, a greenhouse and solar generator that would provide power for the neighborhood and whose upper levels could be turned into gardens to grow food for the homeless. This, perhaps is a building project we can get behind, an emerald vision of how things could be, in which imagination and ethic and science and spirit are harnessed together to build something that seeks not to outdo the divine, but to pay tribute to nature in one of the simplest ways of all, by providing light to the blind and food to the hungry. Ultimately, perhaps all the material and spiritual architecture the human mind can conceive of is less than the feeling one gets from giving freely to others, from breaking bread together at one table. The episode today contains references from several books. These are The Cult of the Black Virgin by Eon Begg, More Than Real by David Shulman, and The Body of Myth by Joseph Sansonese. That's S-A-N-S-O-N-E-S-E. You can find all of these books in the usual places. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's Patreon P A T R E O N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time. May we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder.